Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Uh, legal in the state where you live. If you're listening in 29 of the 50 U.S. states, then uh, the answer to that question is uh, yes, it's legal where I live. However, um, in three of those states, there's a moratorium on carrying it out. So functionally, there are 26 states in the union that uh, carry out capital punishment as an exercise of government justice. When capital crimes are committed, Um, 21 states officially do not use the death penalty. The death penalty is is illegal in 21 of uh, of the 50 U.S. states. And then if you add in, if you add back in the three where there is a moratorium, which would be Oregon, Pennsylvania and California, um, then although it's legal in those states, they don't they don't actually carry it out. So uh, why do I bring this up? Um, because issues of life and death and justice and race and poverty and truth and therefore capital punishment um, are conversations that you and I as Christians must be prepared to engage in today because of the execution of Nathaniel Woods. Nathaniel Woods is a name, if you have not yet heard, you are going to hear it today. Um, he was put to death under the laws of the state of Alabama and the United States of America last night. In 2004, uh, he was present and complicit in the triple homicide of three Birmingham, Alabama police officers. He was there. Nobody, uh, nobody can test that. Uh, he did not pull the trigger. Uh, the person who pulled the trigger um, has confessed. Um, but under Alabama law, um, being present and complicit, being an, an active accomplice, let's say, um, is a capital crime. It's a capital offense, particularly when the victims are police officers. And so... Uh, the question of whether or not it should be a capital offense, the, the question of whether or not capital punishment should be something that um, that we use in 2020 in the United States of America, all of those things are debatable. Um, it's debatable whether or not this young black man had access to competent, unbiased legal counsel. Very debatable. Here are a few things that for Christians today are beyond debate. Oh, and I recognize that for those of you listening in Wisconsin, you know, the death penalty has been illegal since 1853. For those of you listening in Minnesota, it's been illegal since 1911. These are not active conversations, um, very likely, in your community. And so um, as, as Christians, there are things that we, we must think about, even if they are not uh, a hot topic in the particular community where we live. So as Christians, life matters to us. As Christians, life matters to us. That's why a death penalty conversation or the conversation about the state carrying out an execution um, against an individual complicit in a murder but not personally um, the trigger man, um, this, it's, it's why this conversation matters to us today. So as Christians, life matters to us, every life, all of life, um, from the beginning of life, which I would argue is at conception, um, to, the, to the natural end of life. 
As Christians, truth matters to us. As Christians, justice matters to us. As Christians, the government's power to execute justice in the form of capital punishment matters to us. So those are some conversations for you and I to prayerfully consider today um, as we witness others who are going to be responding to the execution of Nate Woods. They are going to be, they're already responding. There may be um, protests in your community. If you live in the South, there are certainly very, very robust conversations about this today. So when I say I'm pro-life, what does that mean? That's a question that you and I as Christians should be prepared to answer. How does the, how does the execution of, of Jesus, like how does that inform me in terms of a conversation about capital punishment today? That's, that's, a, that's a, worthy, it's a worthy conversation for you to have with yourself, um, if not with someone else. I mean, Jesus was sinless, um, wrongfully accused and convicted, um, executed between two rightly convicted criminals. How does all of that inform my understanding of what happened in Alabama last night and my um, my sense of justice in the United States of America today? So um, I'm not uh, I'm not arguing that the state does not have a sovereign right to execute justice. It certainly does. Um, And we, the people in the United States of America, are ultimately the government. And so ultimately, the power of execution lies in our hands. And so I thought it was worthy to pause this morning and recognize that um, ultimately, I mean, we're responsible for the form and means of justice that are carried out in America and, yes, in Alabama last night. It is a complex case. You're going to hear a lot about it today. So I thought we might just lead off um, with some prayerful consideration of what it means to be pro-life and or pro-death penalty um, and whether or not those two things are held in tension in our hearts and minds as Christians today. All right. First up this morning, I've got Jeff Eckert. If, 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 if you're thinking to yourself, wow, what might happen? You're not thinking this, but you're going to be thinking this now. What might happen if a million students in middle and high school, if a million students in middle and high school were actively praying on and for their school campuses? What might happen? Well, that's the vision of Claim Your Campus. I've got Jeff Eckert up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am thrilled to be joined today by Jeff Eckert. Jeff uh, represents an organization called Claim Your Campus, and you can find all the information you need at claimyourcampus2020.com. Jeff, welcome. Good to be here, Carmen. Good to see you. All right, what is my campus, and um, why does it need to be claimed? Yeah, we're talking about middle school and high school campuses across the country, and Claim Your Campus is uniting and engaging students to start prayer groups and to pray for change in their schools. Okay, I love that. So middle and high school. Yes. Um, how, how would a middle or high school student, like, first of all, find out about this? And then how would they get connected with the movement? So they find out we're on tours and we're at events and youth groups. We're connected all over the country. We've got upwards of about 50,000 students already meeting weekly to pray. So what we're challenging students to do is go to your school once a week, Use our app. It's called Campus Prayer. They download it for free, and it guides them on how to lead a prayer group. Just get the app, meet once a week with their friends, and pray. And we're seeing schools change across the country. Our ultimate goal is to get a student-led prayer group in every middle and high school. If we had 
on average of 15 students, meaning at every middle and high school in the country, we'd have a million students praying. Okay, and how extraordinary might that be? I mean, what might God do with that many young people praying intentionally, gathering for prayer and praying not only for their specific school, but praying for other concerns as well, I'm guessing. Yes, they pray. We really challenge them to think outside of themselves. They're not there sharing prayer requests necessarily per se. They're there, and the app guides them through how to think externally when they pray. What are issues at our school, for example, racism, gossip, bullying, abuse, um, more compassionate Christ followers, protection for the school from violence, respect amongst peers and teachers, things like that, issues that are are playing out every day in school campuses. And, and you know, today a lot of schools, and schools themselves are, they make headlines for the wrong reasons, sometimes tragic ones. And we want to see this generation reclaim our schools and believers stand up in a very humble but yet bold way to say, I'm going to pray and I'm going to, to claim responsibility to show Jesus and share him at my school with my friends. Okay, lots of you listening right now, you're in the car, you're in the car with mom or dad, you're on your way to school, or, you know, those of you 16 and up, you're driving yourselves to school, it scares all of us, but we're glad that you're listening, and we want you to connect with Claim Your Campus 2020. You can check it out at cyc2020.com. You can also download the app. Remind us what the app is again? Yeah, the app is called Campus Prayer. Okay, so Jeff, my guess is that sometimes you get some people who push back and say, well, I go to a public school, so we can't pray at a public school, right? There are a lot of misunderstandings about that, and what we call students to do is uh, something that they have every legal right to do, and that's to gather on their own and pray. It doesn't have to be school-sanctioned. They have the freedom to do that. It's, it's, It's black and white legally for them, but we're saying to them, you don't have to be a, a sanctioned club. You just have to be a prayer group that meets organically, just meet and pray. Obviously, it's outside of the classroom, but uh, what we find is when students go to their school officials sometimes, school officials don't quite understand all the ins and outs of, of what this is, and so it's just a simple thing like just meet and pray. And this summer, we're doing an event called Claim Your Campus 2020. You mentioned it, cyc2020.com is our website. And Claim Your Campus 2020, it's an event that we are inviting and believing God to bring 100,000 students together for this event. It's a once-in-a-lifetime deal, July 4th weekend, and we want to mobilize 100,000 students in one weekend at one time to go back to their schools around the country to pray, to share their faith, and to serve on their campus. Okay, so the event is in Kansas City, yes. um, July 3rd to the 5th, 2020. Um, for those of you listening in our live Kansas City uh, market, this is obviously really easy for you. Also, I think a great opportunity for Christians in the Kansas City area to be opening up their homes, opening up their churches, recognizing there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to come um, for this event, really a hospitality opportunity for Christians in the city of, of Kansas City. So that's really fun. Um, talk with us about um, how a person might get this started where they are. What's a first step? Yeah, so adults that are listening, one of the really key strategic things you can do right away, go to cyc2020.com, and when you go to the website, there'll be a pop-up there that asks for your name and email. We don't sell or spam people that do that, but we keep people involved. We talk to parents and coaches and teachers all over the country, and we're all feeling very similar. We're concerned about what our students are believing, what they're doing, and we think students themselves are the way to lead the change. So as an adult, if you go to cyc2020.com, put in your name and email, 
we're going to communicate with you because we need adults right now uh, to bring students to this event, to be a part of something historic, a moment for this generation. And for students that are listening, it's pretty simple. Uh, obviously, we want to see them at the event. We want to gather a generation together to meet with God and to be mobilized. But but download the Campus Prayer app and start praying right now. That's something uh, for adults. You can go to the website, get signed up. Students, you can download the app and start right now. So, Jeff, um, why are you doing this? Like, why are you doing this? That's a great question. I, I've worked with students for almost 30 years, and I saw with my own eyes uh, kids in my youth group from Grand Rapids, Michigan, that were praying. Eight students. They met. Uh, they're from the largest public high school in our state, East Kentwood High School. A large school, 48 countries of origin. We're in the student body when this started happening. And eight students we met every Tuesday morning. They started praying. And one day I asked them, pick something specific you can pray about that you could see God change. And they wanted to pray about fights in the school because they were happening pretty much on a daily basis. Three months go by. I happened to kind of, you know, coincidentally see the school board report for this school, East Kentwood High School. And for the first time in the history of this school, fighting had stopped. And when I saw that happen, it changed my life because I realized the power of students praying on campus. And it gripped me, and God got a hold of my heart and wouldn't let go. And so in the period of the next couple years, I became um, kind of obsessed with this idea of what would it look like in the United States if there's a prayer group in every school. So eventually led to me quitting my job and and doing this. And this uh, this event we've been planning for several years, and we just believe it could be a historic moment for this generation and for our nation. All right, if you're listening right now, I'm talking with Jeff Eckert. We are talking about Claim Your Campus, specifically an event being held over July 4th weekend in Kansas City called Claim Your Campus 2020. You can check it all out at CYC. 2020.com. When we come back, Jeff and I are going to talk about the power of prayer. Um, And we're going to talk about how you could be praying right now for students and schools in your own community. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing my conversation now with Jeff Eckert. We are talking about Claim Your Campus. The website is cyc2020.com. Jeff, let's talk a little bit more about the power of prayer. It is transformative. I think we forget that. Yeah, I I tell people a lot. It's funny. um, When I saw what happened in the school when students were praying, I, I, I think I probably even said it out loud. I can't believe it, you know? And it's funny because I laugh when I think about that because... Whenever I see God answer prayer, it's almost like it's the first time it happens all over again. It's like 51st dates. It's like, whoa, this, I can't, you know, it's just, it's new every time. And that's what I love about the power of prayer is what God does. And, uh, and it's almost like startling every time. And there's nothing to me more beautiful than seeing students pray and seeing that their eyes open to what happens as God, uh, is able to to work and partner with this relationship through prayer that they have to see to see God bring change to these schools that are experiencing you know students that that live in misery every day they're being bullied there's racism there's you know poverty there's uh, malnutrition there's you know a, a, a an atmosphere of fear sometimes and we've we've tapped into what are the top twenty issues that 
are happening on school campuses and helping students understand how to pray into those things. So if you're an adult listening right now and you say, you know what, I would really just like to know more about what's happening on campuses and with young people across the country, I would like to be a person praying um, with and for this effort. We invite you to participate as well. We are looking for... um, I don't know, a million? Are we looking for a million young people? Yes, we want to see a million young people praying in the United States. And and that's not just a nice, big, even round number. That's a very calculated, specific number. It's 15, average of 15 students on every middle and high school meeting once a week to pray. And the interesting thing, Carmen, is that in the United States, no matter where you live, no matter where you're listening right now, wherever you live, in whatever community, there's a school there. And so this is a strategy that impacts every community in the United States. And I would add this, in my experience in several decades with students, students are um, less and less likely to come through the doors of our churches right now. So instead of just giving up, let's go where they are. 98% of our population is on a middle school and high school campus during those years. Even with the rise of homeschool, it's 98%. They spend 9,000 hours in middle and high school on campus, and during the school year, 50% of their waking hours, they're, they're on campus. So it's where they are. It's where our population is. I call it the most strategic mission field in the United States, the school campus. Okay, so I'm, um, I'm excited and energized about, uh, about this idea and sort of the ripple effect of it. I want adults to be praying for God to lift up those 15 or 20 students at, at the middle and local high schools that these adults are aware of, right? Yeah. So as you're driving right now or you're even thinking about, like, your zip code, right, there is at least one middle and high school right there sort of in your immediate sphere of influence. So I want you to pray right now for that middle school and that high school. And I want you to be praying for the 15 or 20 students in that middle school and that high school who God is going to raise up to claim that campus. So this is an effort to claim your campus. You know what your campus is in your community. I know the name of mine. You know the name of yours. I want you to pray right now for God to lift up the 15 or 20 students that are in that middle school and that high school. Um, And then I want you to um, be praying strategically and sharing the information about CYC 2020 uh, with your youth pastor, with, with somebody at that middle school or high school who you know, somebody who is in proximity to young people, so that we can get this information out. The website is cyc2020.com. Jeff, um, anything else you want people to know about this, about this effort? Well, we're, we're grateful for everyone out there that's praying and adults that are standing behind this generation. And I just want to challenge all of us as adults. You know, Keith Green, I'm probably going to get the quote wrong, but this Christian musician from from days past said that each generation is responsible. He's my for... husband's favorite musician. Oh yeah, he's so he's great. not just years past. Oh, he sings in I my house. I love him. I love there him. You go. And he was a prophet, you know, during his time. So I interrupted you. Yeah, no, that's great. And he, you know, he said uh, each generation is responsible for that generation of souls. Each generation of Christians. And as as we're listening to this, as we're talking uh, as adults, we're responsible for this generation. And I just want to challenge all of us to step forward here and get kids to this event. They need a moment. Woodstock happened 50 years ago. We're still feeling the effects of it. We need a moment with God for this generation. Our prayer has been, Father, meet us in the field. We're asking that God would meet with this generation as a father would with a daughter or a son in that field in Kansas for July 4th weekend. So I just want to encourage you, cyc2020.com, put your name and email, and let's stay in touch with you and Perhaps God might lead you to bring a group out for the summer. 
Jeff Eckert, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, the website is claimyourcampus2020.com or cyc2020.com. And the downloadable app is? Campus Prayer. All right, let's be praying for our campuses. We'll be right back. All right, so um, I I might have uh, a, a little rant coming up at the end of the hour. But before I get to that, and it's about the use of the word resurrection in the culture today in reference to like an uptick in somebody's political support. That is not resurrection. Anyway, I, I will talk about it at the end of the hour. I'm going to save that. Next up, I've got Dan DeWitt. He and I are going to talk about the Apostle Paul's remedy for relational conflict. We're also going to talk about uh, three eyes for good Bible reading. That sounds interesting. All of it is posted at theolatte.com in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. I've got Dan DeWitt up next. We'll be right back. I meet a lot of parents who wonder why their teen is so irresponsible. Hey, teens will always act immature because they're still growing up. But sometimes mom and dad are getting in the way. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Are you an overly responsible parent? Raising an irresponsible teen? When you do everything for your kid, it does nothing more than postpone his or her potential to grow up. In fact, when you step in and protect them from the natural consequences to their behavior, you're actually stifling creativity and limiting motivation. Let go of all the stuff you're doing on their behalf. Quit trying to rescue your teen from the hard knocks of life. Who knows, if you step out, they might just step up. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, joining me is Dan DeWitt. You can find him at theolatte.com. We're talking about this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Dan, welcome back. Thanks. So good to be with you, Carmen. <laughs> it's great to have you. Okay, so um, Paul's remedy for relational conflict. I, I can we start there because Absolutely. I. Um, so you have two pieces posted at theolatte dot com that I want to talk about today. Um, they're both listed on this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, um, and because this one takes a particular passage passage of scripture um, and directly applies it to life. If we could do this one first, because let me just tell you, that's what our listeners are hungry for. They are hungry sure. for the way the word of God applies to life today. And we all live with some measure of relational conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I often will speak at, you know, conferences or in church settings on the topic of biblical worldview. And one of the things I like to lead with because I think people can be intimidated and think that that sounds really kind of philosophical or this is academic or something like that. I like to start by saying, if you want a biblical worldview, read your Bible a lot, and you'll you'll begin to see the world through the, the lens of the biblical authors, which really is by definition what a biblical worldview is, you know, seeing the world through the Bible. And so this passage um, or the, the post on Paul's remedy for relational conflict— I was reading Philippians 4 the other day and was just struck by the fact that Paul in Philippians 4.2 talks about two ladies who have some kind of disagreement, and he tells them they, they need to agree um, and to be engaged in their partnership for the gospel. And then immediately after that, he talks about rejoicing and reasonableness. 
And it seemed to me that that is not a disconnected idea that, you know, often our the remedy to our relational strife is the fact that we learn to rejoice with one another and that we be reasonable. And often where you see relational conflict, those are the first two things to go, particularly on social media. People will quit rejoicing with one another and they'll just become very unreasonable. All right. So again, Philippians chapter four, verses two to seven, I'm going to read it. We entreat Eudea. You think that's her name? And we entreat yeah. um, Syntyche. How do you think that's how you say her name? I don't that's know. That's why I made you read it, right? <laughs> My gosh, Eudonia and Syntyche. All right. We're going to call them you and, and sis. Um, we, we want you to agree in the Lord. Yes. I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, which, by the way, that's where I want my name to be. And then uh, and then the sentence that we're keying in on that has the two R's rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We know that last verse, but what you're helping us see is the con uh, is the context of uh, of the verse about prayer um, and praying in all circumstances. You're helping us see the context is really this this relational conflict that yeah. Paul is seeking to remedy. Yeah, and often you think about it: what hinders our prayers? What hinders our joy? you know, what hinders our um, peace, experience of the peace of God, is often relational conflict. And so it makes perfect sense here that Paul begins by addressing this very practical situation, these two individuals who are believers, but they don't agree. And then he shows them the remedy for this is to find joy in the Lord and to be reasonable. And I I don't know about you, but I need that reminder regularly because it's easy to be jealous and then which leads us away from joy. And it's also easy to be unreasonable with others. And those are the kind of things that keep us from experiencing the very peace of God. So I think that when I, I I think part of my relational conflict, Dan, sometimes then bubbles up when I'm, I'm with someone and I am thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm following this, like, right. I'm, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I'm, Mm -hmm. and I am being reasonable, but they are not. So that takes me personally, you, maybe this doesn't take you there, but it takes me to the third R in this passage, which is mm. let your requests be made known to God. Oh, that's so <laughs> good. In yeah. that moment, sometimes the best I can do is just pray. Mm-hmm. Like, right? If the other person is not rejoicing in the Lord <clears throat> and not being reasonable, sometimes the, I mean, the, the best I can do is certainly not argue with them. I mean, that is just not, I don't know if you've ever tried to argue with somebody being unreasonable, but it's not effective. Um, And so letting my request be made known to God in that moment is just sometimes the very best thing I can do. Absolutely. That's good. All right. So you have this other piece at uh, Theolatte.com posted right now that I just absolutely love. Um, First of all, let me remind everybody, I'm talking to Dan DeWitt. uh, And what we're talking about today is posted at Theolatte.com. It's also included in his weekend worldview reader, which uh, I like to use as a an opportunity to get myself exposed to things that I might not have seen pop up across uh, across the web. 
and things that uh, I want to be reading to continue to not only inform myself, but cultivate a biblical worldview on the matters of the day. So this other, uh, the second piece um, is three eyes, and that's not like the letter I, it's like three eyeballs, three eyes for good Bible reading. And um, this was uh, one of those um, pieces that surprised me, like in a, in a positive way. So, because, you know, we think about the third eye, I got to tell you, I was not, I was not immediately thinking that, that this was going to go in a good direction, and yet it, hmm. it does. So um, talk about uh, why we read Scripture, and then when we come back from the break, we'll talk specifically about the three eyes. Yeah, we, we read Scripture to understand what God has revealed about Himself. And if we don't understand the meaning that the author put into the text, then we're not, we're not understanding what God has said. And so it's very important that we begin— by properly interpreting Scripture. And if we get that wrong, every step that follows is going to be in the wrong, perhaps in the wrong direction. So let's um, let's talk about—so you use the term author, and mm-hmm. I think that understanding that the—what what do we call it? Dual authorship? The, this yeah. notion, this, re, this reality, it's not just an idea, but that God is the author behind it, but there are these human authors as well. Can you talk, can you talk about that? Yeah, so when when Christians use the, the word inspiration, we really are talking about, whether we realize it or not, that there's two authors in the text, that there's the human author, so say the Apostle Paul, but there's also a divine author. So God's inspiring the biblical author to write exactly what God wants him to write without error, which is why we use another I word, inerrancy, that the Bible is without error. And so it's important that when we come to the text, we realize that it's inspired by God, but God could have just written it on stone with his own hand, right? But God used this human agent. Um, And so to understand what's in the text, we have to understand what was the author's willed meaning as he was inspired by God. And so that's what we mean by dual authorship. And so that's why you could have an Old Testament passage, which are biblical authors writing about some messianic prophecy, something that'll be fulfilled hundreds or even, you know, um, hundreds of years later. But there's a divine author who knows exactly what's going to happen in the years to come. So in that text, you have the human author who might be unaware of how this will be fulfilled and a divine author. And if we're going to understand the text when we open the Bible, we have to understand it's inspired by God and God used this human author and understanding the language he wrote with um, and understanding the meaning that he placed into the text is primary. That's our first goal as good Bible readers. Yeah, it occurs to me that some of the prophets, I mean, they even come right out and say, look, I don't exactly understand what I'm talking about here, but God yeah. has said this and this is going to happen. So um, the timing on it is is unknown to every generation until the generation that um, that has the view to understand it because it makes sense uh, to them. All right. So we're going to come back from the break and Dan DeWitt and I are going to continue this conversation. We're going to talk specifically about the three eyes for good Bible reading, the eye of interpretation, the eye of implication and the eye of implementation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can find everything we're talking about today at theolatte.com. That's like God and coffee together, Theolatte. Uh, the Weekend Worldview Reader is an easy access point for um, not only these two articles that we're talking about today, but a list of other things that you might consider uh, reading and watching over the weekend uh, just to 
cultivate a biblical worldview on the matters of the day. So, Dan, continuing our conversation about the three eyes for good Bible reading, let's just walk through them. What is the first eye? First eye is the eye of interpretation, and it's what we were just discussing. It's about understanding what the author's willed meaning is in the text. And it's just a reminder that when we ask the question, what does this text mean to you, that's actually the wrong question. The first question is, what did this text mean to the author? Because the the author is the one who willed the meaning into the text. Of course, he's inspired by God, but the meaning resides in the text that he wrote, and we want to understand what that means. Um, where do we get tripped up um, in the area of interpretation? I, we often get tripped up. I, I believe that God's revelation of himself is is straightforward. It's simple. It's accessible. Um, there are places where it's difficult to understand. There are more weighty theological issues. But by and large, the meaning of the text is not veiled to us. You know, for the person who loves the Lord, who's asking God to— um, allow them to understand the significance of the passage. It's it's straightforward. The The issue we often have is we want the text to mean something immediately to our felt need. And so sometimes we don't spend enough time camping out in a passage of Scripture and asking what, what actually does this text mean to the author, to its original audience. Um, too often we move quickly to what's my felt need, and in doing that we often miss what is the obvious meaning in the text right in front of us. All right. So the first eye is the eye of interpretation. The second eye is the eye of implication. What does that mean? So th- there are things, you know, the, the meaning of the text is going to be tied to what are the words that are right there in front of us. And so when the Apostle Paul says, for example, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, it's clear it means exactly that. Don't be drunk with wine, um, but allow the Spirit to control you. And, and the issue there is the issue of control, which is controlling you. Is it this substance, or is it the Spirit of God? An implication of that, it's not clearly explicitly mentioned in the text, but it fits within that pattern of meaning, um, would be something like other mind-controlling substances. So we could say an implication of that would be, you know, don't be high on marijuana, um, because, or, but be filled with the Spirit. So that's not explicit in the text, the meaning of the text, but it's clearly an implication of the text. And so the implication of the text should always be something that is can be well defended. You know, it's clear that this would fit into the pattern of meaning that's laid out in the passage. All right, so we have uh, the eye of interpretation and the eye of implication, and then maybe the one that is uh, most critical in terms of me walking this out in my life. Yeah. The eye of implementation. Tell us about that. So this is really when we think about Bible application. You know, we start with the meaning, don't be drunk with wine, to use that example. And then we have an implication. The implication could be, you know, other mind-controlling substances. Paul didn't mention marijuana, but that could easily fit into that as an implication. And then I'm going to apply this to my life. So I'm going to say, what are ways that I could keep from being controlled by, you know, mind-altering substances? And so someone might say, I'm going to make sure that I am a responsible, um, I have a responsible use of alcohol. So that would be one application. And some somebody might have some level of accountability for how they would do that. Some people might say, you know, my application of this is I'm not going to drink any alcohol at all. And we would see in light of the meaning of the text that both are acceptable applications. And so when we implement the text, we're now moving further away from the explicit meaning of the text 
and we're in the realm of how I personally feel like, like God is leading me to implement this in my life. The challenge we have as Christians, and what I tried to point out in the article, is sometimes we take our application and we replace it as the meaning of the text. And that doesn't that does a disservice to the text because we, we don't have the license to say what the meaning of the text is. The meaning of the text is not my application of it. So I can't come to you, Carmen, and say, I choose not to drink, and therefore you're wrong if you choose to socially drink, but rather say, I'm applying it this way, but the text doesn't necessarily require it because the meaning is in the text. It's not in my application. So I think that is where we get in trouble on this one, right? We, yeah. Yeah. So we assume, or we maybe assumes the wrong word, we um, project the way that God is convicting us to integrate um, his word into our own life as if it is absolutely um, the way that it must be integrated in the life of every other person. And what I hear you saying is that on some of these, the the implementation or integration part of this, um, there's some there's some liberty, some individual Ab- there's a there's an individual um, uh, application, implementation or integration part of this conversation. Absolutely. And it's still objective because we could say, what is the meaning of the text? And so um, you could have two Christians who differ on how they apply it, but both of them with the objective definition of what does Paul say can be being faithful to the text. And so it's not always the subjective, how do you feel led to apply it and how do you feel led to apply it? And then we import that into the text to where now the text is subjective um, it's still objective. The meanings in the text, how you apply it might be different. As Christians, we need to give each other liberty to do that, and we need to be really cautious where we're reading the Bible in such a way that we're taking our application of the text and inserting it and replacing the meaning of the text with our personal application. We don't have license to do that. The The meaning is in the text. It was willed there by the author, by God and the biblical author, and we need to accept that, apply it as the Spirit leads us, Give liberty to others as they apply it, as they apply it, how God might lead them to do so. And that gets us over the hurdle um, of sort of what does it mean to me? The, the what does it mean to me ism or, or approach that people take mm-hmm. um, sort of robs the scripture of its actual meaning and the author of his intent. And we don't want to do either of those things. So I want to be sure um, as you're listening today, you don't you don't hear Dan DeWitt and I saying that, hey, the Bible can mean whatever you imagine that it means, mm-hmm. um, whatever conforms to your proclivities or your desires. No, no. The, the, the author of the scriptures has something to say, and he means what he says. And so we must be people who care what God has said in his holy word and then submit ourselves to what does it look like for my life to be conformed to that word. That's the implementation or integration part of this conversation. It's not that I manipulate the Word of God to fit what I want to do or how I feel. It is me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, I I want my life to be more and more conformed to what I know God has said in His Word. You know, I'm reminded of John Stott's quote, which is so good. He said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want Mm -hmm. to hear God speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. God, God, God has given us um, his, his revelation. We are under that. So we want to start with what does it mean? And then at some point, we certainly want to say, how can I apply this to my life? But we don't want to become legalists with others and say, you have to apply it exactly the way I do, but rather to say, we're all under this word. 
what does it mean? And then let's ask the Spirit to help us live it out. Yeah, amen. Let's go there together and seek, seek, seek the truth. Dan DeWitt, thank you as always for this conversation. Uh, we've had listeners text in, hey, where can I find that? You can find it at theolatte.com. Sign up for the Weekend Worldview Reader. Lots of good content there. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. So um, this is going to be a little quick resurrection rant. The word resurrection actually means something. It means something specific. It means something real. And so today, when you hear it used or see it used in reference to what I will uh, describe as a momentary rising tide of political support for a particular campaign, that is not resurrection. You have to interrupt that, and you have to say, that is not what resurrection means, and you have to tell the Easter story. So I have a friend named Kim. Um, This happened years ago, but she invited a friend from work uh, to join her on Easter Sunday for worship. And um, they they had planned to go to a run together, and Kim was like, hey, come with me to, to, uh, to church before we go on our run. And, and the friend was like, sure. So Kim's friend was a professional. She'd been to college. She'd been to graduate school. She'd never been uh, to, to worship on Easter. She'd never heard the Easter story. And so when the pastor read the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, Kim's friend grabbed her arm, turned to her wide-eyed and asked out loud, is that true? Is that really true? And Kim smiled and said, yes. And her friend said out loud in worship, y'all should really be telling people about this. Indeed, we should. Resurrection means something, and people need to know uh, Jesus who rose from the dead and the power of the gospel. So let's be uh, reclaiming that word today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.